1: Our weekly check-in with apparel insiders and thought leaders, which spotlights a variety of topics currently driving change in the market.
0: This podcast series is made possible by Cotton Incorporated, a not-for-profit company funded by U.S. cotton producers and importers whose mission is to increase the demand and profitability of cotton. Discover what cotton can do.
1: I am Edward Hertzman, founder and president of Sourcing Journal. Today, we'll discuss apparel retail, and we'll try to get to the bottom of what's going on in a sector that's had many challenges lately, but that's also experiencing a nice tailwind currently, thanks to the healthy economy. In the midst of all of this, apparel brands and retailers are attempting to shake off old processes and technologies in favor of new practices and innovations. To help us gain insight into the market, we have John Kernan. Managing Director for Retail and Consumer Brands for Cowan Company, joining us today. As a research analyst, John covers apparel, footwear, and textiles with an eye on all of the major brands and retailers in the space, including Burlington, TJ Maxx, VF, Under Armour, Guess, Foot Locker, Lululemon, and many more. John, thank you for being with us today. Great to be here, Ed. Thanks for having me. So, John, last year uh, it was all about the retail apocalypse but we certainly haven't seen as many retailers going out of business this year. Uh, at least not in the apparel space. What's what's changed and how much of it is dependent on the US economy remaining strong?
2: Yeah, sure. I think, you know, there was a narrative in the press and the financial community last year about store closures, retail apocalypse and you know, the numbers we saw up up until really Black Friday of last year we not very good. And then all of a sudden, everybody got their inventory in line. And at the same time, you saw retail brick-and-mortar traffic start to improve and actually increase. And it continued all throughout the first nine months of this year, essentially. So we've seen a big change in fundamentals within retail, and that includes brick-and-mortar retail. Right now, we are seeing the best Growth in brick-and-mortar retail that we have seen in almost a decade in terms of year-over-year top-line growth. The numbers that you're seeing out of big-box retailers, whether it's Walmart, Target, TJX, Ross Stores, Burlington, uh, and then you know on the specialty side like a Lululemon, and um, we we haven't seen growth like this in a long time. And uh, we're in a very strong consumer environment. Some of that's cyclical, and ultimately that will slow. But I think what you've seen is just a big change in fundamentals. across retail that have that have really changed the narrative at this point. Now, yeah, there's still retailers that are going to go away. Uh we think Sears and Kmart are liquidation that's just waiting to happen. I think that will be the next catalyst to send several C you know several hundred potentially C and D malls turn them into parking lots essentially. Um but the other areas of retail it's outside of really C and D malls are quite healthy at this point. So, so you mentioned a, a
1: couple of the off-price players, you know, like a TJ and a Ross, and you know Burlington's another one. Let, let's talk about this sector uh, for for a moment. It, it's been hot for a while. Off-price seems to be winning with the traditional formula: great assortment, great assortments, great value. Given the success of the sector, what do you make of the rest of the retail world uh, and its focus on experiences and bells and whistles?
2: Yeah, sure. If you want to start with off-price, there's three the three key. Retailers are obviously TJX, Ross, and Burlington. The consumers that shop those stores are a little bit different. TJ, you know, Marshalls and TJ Maxx, obviously being the higher end. Ross and Burlington kind of being a lower end uh, consumer on, for the most part. Um, this, if you add up the market caps of TJX, Ross stores, and Burlington right now, you're talking over a hundred billion dollars plus in market cap. Incredible. I mean, Nike's a hundred and thirty billion dollar company. So if you think about the size of these retailers at this point, it's it's pretty it's pretty incredible. Um, all three stocks hit all-time highs in stock prices uh, in August when they reported earnings. We think they're going higher. Um, and when you desegregate off-price from you know high-end or mid-tier retail, uh, what gets people in those stores is one value, but the rest is that treasure hunt shopping experience where inventory is constantly moving. The store economics that these businesses generate are off the charts. They generate returns on capital that are just so far in excess of retail peers. Uh, and that's why you get the big market caps, right, because they print free cash flow. And that's how you value you know companies in, in the public markets. And the economics here, the store economics of rapidly flowing inventory, they get consumers in on a treasure hunt experience that's all focused on value. Uh, it's just going to continue to be a market share gainer. Um, they don't need experience. Their experience is shopping. Shopping is heroin for people. It's addictive. They can't stop doing it. We're, human beings are conditioned to spend and shop, particularly Americans in the capitalist system. It, consumption is you – know, our economy is built on consumption. So this off-price retail machine is really just built on fast-moving goods, great value that you're not going to get in an apartment store channel, good brands for the most part. Um, they don't need experience. Their experience is the fact they're getting you in the store to shop on a treasure hunt experience. You go into some of the higher end retail that is, you know, the bells and whistles of, um, food and gyms and all these tangential experiences inside the stores. I, 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 you know, that's a different, it's a different game. Um, but it also seems to be working at the high end. If you look at the the real estate investment trusts that run the A malls whether it's Simon Realty, uh, Taubman, Macerich, all of their sales per square foot metrics are moving higher and in the right direction. Our occupancy metrics are very um are very stable and um their rents are actually increasing too. So there's demand there at that high end experiential real estate um A mall type level. Um, you know, Nike, as a side example, created a pop-up store in Beverly Hills called Nike Live, and it's like, it's very futuristic in a sense that it's it's based on personalization, customization. Um, their new store on Fifth Avenue is going to have a floor solely for Nike Plus members. Um, so you're seeing changes at the margin as it relates to experiences and personalization and kind of at the higher end of retail. But, you know, to your original point, off price doesn't rely on that. It's a different business model. Yeah, scarcity
1: seems to be their 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 greatest asset, and that's that's what's driving people into the store, and it's creating a sense of urgency. But you know, with 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 the success of off price, obviously, it becomes a lot of me too competitors. It seems that whether uh, Macy's and backstage, obviously Nordstrom, uh, and and their rack, uh, you know, the rack has been their their quickest uh, growth driver over the past uh, several years. You know, we see Saks off fifth. You know, we can name you know several traditional retailers that have uh, really tried to get into the space and have seen success. But at what point is this market going to get saturated, and how much does that concern you?
2: You know, I I think TJ dominates what they do. They've got you know how many thousands of buyers out there, how many thousands of vendors. You just can't replicate that. Raw Stores in Burlington are catering to a lower income consumer. I don't think. Nordstrom Rack, Macy's Backstage can compete with Ross and Burlington in terms of value, but we know they can't. And I don't think they can compete with TJX in terms of the flow of goods. Um, I just, you know, to copy the TJX, Ross, and Burlington store models, they're just, I mean, walk into the store. The store is assorted completely different. The goods flow faster. It's certainly different price points when you start talking about Ross and and Burlington. It's a lower-income consumer than... They would ever walk into a Nordstrom Rack or a, a Macy's backstage. I just, I don't think you can replicate the buying process or the culture inside the company. So that I, so I don't, I don't think the copycats have had a lot of success. I don't think they will.
1: So these retailers are, are, are pretty adamant that this is not cannibalizing the traditional business. This is a way to bring a new generation of shoppers into the store. Uh, you know, it's an aspirational. Um, you know, it's like aspirational luxury. Like it gets, a, it's a way to get them in. It's a way to get them associated with the brand. And as, and as they progress in their life, and if they start to earn more money, they'll you know graduate to the to the full price uh, retail retailer. But the question is, um, there's a lot of uh, discussion on that. Do you think that these off price channels for these these stores, like a Nordstrom Rack or Saks Off Fifth or a Bloomingdale's, you know, outlet or whatnot? Are cannibalizing their, you know, traditional stores because at the end of the day, the retailers are savvy and they're realizing that hey, I don't need to spend two hundred dollars for a premium pair of jeans that maybe I could get for seventy five dollars down the block, um, and there maybe isn't a different customer that was that that was originally planned out to be. So you're hearing multiple sides to this story. Just, just curious to know your to hear your perspective
2: on this. Yeah, sure. I think that in general, the overall. Macro call on all of this bigger picture calls that they're just bringing more and more deflation into that core apparel category by opening stores where price points are just so far below their full price offerings. And I I think if you execute an off price retail business like a TJ or Ross or Burlington, you, you tend to generate fantastic store economics. The flow of goods is very fast. I just don't see it at these knockoff concepts that the department stores are creating. And I think they are cannibalizing their core businesses. And I, I just don't think it's their core strength of their business. I don't think it's the core of their consumer. You look at that Ross consumer, you look at that Burlington consumer, it's not the consumer walking into any type of Nordstrom or Macy's store. It's a very stretched financial, financially stretched consumer that's looking for value. They're not as into fashion. Uh, now, they like fashion, but they're, they're really shopping for value, and I just don't see that type of value at the, the Backstage and, and Nordstrom Rack uh, concepts so i i I'm skeptical. I think they're just introducing more deflation they're you know you look at a Macy 's business, the whole business is based off of promotions. I learned that from you, Eddie. They start at fifty. they know they're going to end at seventy percent off. The consumer now knows the game. The inventory turns very slow. The working capital model's terrible compared to the off price model that's not getting caught with excess inventory on a seasonal basis and um i'm skeptical about these these knock off off price concepts. So so one more
1: question as it relates to off-price, and you and I have had many offline conversations about this. You know, one of the successes um, or one of the reasons we're seeing success with some of the traditional brick-and-mortar retailers is that they're starting to get their inventory in line. Um, they're reducing their inventory liability. It's helping them, obviously, with cash flow. It's helping them with markdown. But as that relates to off-price, um, if there's less goods in the market, that's less opportunity for the off-price buyers to take advantage of that. Um, how much of a concern are you seeing? You know, I've heard from them that they don't see any change. They still see see a surplus of, of demand uh, of goods available. Um, they're not worried about it. You know, we also have to go a little bit more futuristic as automation becomes more of a topic, on-demand manufacturing becomes more of a topic. You know the the long term prognosis could be that there could be limited inventory for these off price retailers to choose from, and you know maybe not in a year from now but maybe five or ten years from now so just you know what what are you hearing among your circles
2: you know i it's obvious the big concern among in, institutional investors is that off price will eventually run out of goods to source as the brick and mortar community gets their inventory. Back in line, I still think there's such an excess of brands and product out there, and the vendors are still desperate to keep a certain size in all these different categories. And I, we have not seen off-price um, suffer in terms of inventory availability. And you know, home and electronics and other categories are 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 also growing in a lot of these off-price retailers. So it's not just apparel. Um, but I think if you if you were to listen to a lot of the conference calls that these publicly traded retailers and brands had over the course of the past 12 to 18 months. All they talked about was reducing their off-price exposure, whether it was Ralph Lauren, Nike, Under Armour, uh, Calvin Klein, uh, and Tommy Hilfiger with PVH. All they talked about was we're pulling out of off-price, we're pulling out of off-price. And what are we seeing now? We're still seeing great comps and great gross margin performance out of all the the off-price retailers. So um, I think we've gotten through the worst of the off-price reduction from a lot of those brands. I think you can only cut off-price to a certain level before uh, it becomes a real negative for you. And, uh, you know, we haven't seen that. We still see an excess of goods. There's a lot of, as you know, direct-to-consumer brands popping up all over digitally. And there are, there's going to be product run overruns there. They're going to end up in off-price. So I just think off-price is a part of the retail ecosystem that's not replaceable, particularly as it relates to TJ Maxx. Marshalls, Ross Stores, and Burlington—they have a well-defined place for the consumer in terms of value at this point. I I just—well,
1: it's a necessary evil too. For I mean, and maybe that's being a little bit uh, negative, but for for a lot of apparel companies, um, you kind of know the margin going in. Like you said, look at the amount of stores uh, across the country and even internationally these retailers have. Um, it's a place you have to do business if you want to be in business today as a wholesaler. It's a place you have to do business. So while they're cutting back a little bit, um, especially in the, the Ross and, and and Burlingtons of the world, which maybe rely on a little bit less branded goods, I know they they wouldn't like to publicly probably say that, but you know it's a little bit different customer. The shops TJX versus a Ross and Burlington, um, you know they require a lot of their vendors to have inventory at all times because they want to react very quickly. So to your point. Um, they're still, they're still cutting. They're still cutting for them, and and the the business model continues to be successful. Um, so uh, I do agree. In the short term, uh, I'm hearing uh, no issues at all from an inventory perspective. Uh, maybe you'll have to source from more brands. Maybe they'll have to create some more proprietary brands. But as long as the value and the fashion is there for the consumer at the right price, I, I think off price is, is here to stay for a while.
0: Yeah, I
2: agree with that, Ed. I think you know. I know, you know, my wife worked in theory for a long time in sales, and I know for a fact that their highest margin business was selling to off-price made-for product. It was made, you know, different line on the factory, different fabrication, maybe a little bit different fit, but ultimately, you have that order in hand from off-price on a made-for good. is going to be one of your highest margin businesses, and a lot of brands have are on that heroin, and they're not getting off anytime soon. So you made a good point.
1: There's there seems to be an endless supply of new brands launching. Uh, most of them are direct to consumer. You know these digitally native companies. Well, none of them have scaled to the point where they're you know alone are threats. Uh, but you know the aggregate of them, um, you know this this long tail, they're starting to take mar- market share share from from the more established traditional players. What does this mean for the future of retail, in your opinion?
2: Well, there's, you know, competition is never a good thing for margins in business. Um, I still think the dominant brands that are very well established with their key consumers don't face as big of a risk as maybe some people think. But certainly we've seen a lot of these pop-up digitally native brands, uh, you know, all birds um, and footwear roamed in men's high-end men's apparel, trying to maybe become the next men's Lululemon. Uh, they're all over. Uh, they're, they're, those aren't the only examples, but uh, certainly uh, they're there. You know, Bonobos obviously grew from nothing to you know a very relevant brand, mostly in the digital space. Then they started going more. You know, they've obviously built a lot of uh, physical locations as well. And I think you'll see a lot of these digitally native brands realize they absolutely have to build physical infrastructure to scale. Um, and some of them will be successful. Many, most will not. There's a lot of VC money pouring into this space right now. Um, I don't think a lot of them will become profitable, but the ones that are going to work, you know, will probably be, you know, could scale to, you know, billion dollar plus valuations and there'll be home runs for somebody in the VC community. But I think a lot of these will ultimately, uh, ultimately struggle, but you know, they're there gaining market share.
1: When you say billion plus valuations, can you just, can you just back that into like, uh, what does that mean from a sales perspective? Like how much sales would, would one have to do to be valued at that type
2: of, uh, valuation? Well, you look at the high end of retail right now, and you know want to see some super high EV, you know enterprise value to sales multiples. Look no further than Lululemon, which trades five times sales. You know they're pushing a twenty billion dollar valuation now with four billion dollars in sales. They're pretty. You know that's obviously a very well defined brand. Um, they dominate their key markets. Um, they have an incredibly loyal consumer. So they're, that's a unique. Uh, example, uh, you know, a Nike trades well over three times sales. These are like the high-end, you know, luxury retail tends to trade three times sales for whatever reason. It's, you know, it's, it's somewhat of an unwritten rule. Um, you know, if you can show a lot of growth and show that you have a very well-defined brand proposition, you stand for something, you're unique, you're authentic, you know, look at what Canada Goose has done. It trades seven times sales. Um, you know, granted, they're growing sales, in excess of 50% year over year, every quarter. But if you can come up with great authentic product and you've got a brand message uh, that resonates and you can, you've got a fanatical consumer that'll pay insane, irrational prices for your product, which, you know, $120 for yoga pants and a thousand dollars for a winter jacket. You, know, you can kind of define that as irrational in some ways. Um, is your, is your wife listening to this right now, John?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, you know, you can, uh, you can certainly generate a very high valuation. Yeah, you know, I'd be interested to. Yeah, you know, yeah. So that's be. Yeah, you know, if you can communicate an authentic proposition, high margins because you're selling stuff through at super high prices at full price, um, you can earn a very high valuation. I was shocked with Bonobos only got sold for three hundred fifty million, but they had a down round of funding. So, um, you know, but there's yeah, you know, there'll be more examples and successes like this. It's only going to make the old guard make things more hard for them in North America. That's why they're all reaching for growth in China and, and Europe at this point.
1: So, you you know, you mentioned uh, Lululemon, uh, I mean, their success, um, and, and that, that plays into the athleisure category and you, and, you know, you, you mentioned Roan and there's so many brands trying to capture market share there, especially on the men's side of the business. You know, where are we in this trend cycle right now? You know, have we seen a peak Are our brands still continuing to chase this? Is it still performing well? Um, yeah, I don't think we're anywhere near
2: peak. I think that this category in general is a, is will go through its ebbs and flows. Certainly, three years ago, everybody was so hung up on athleisure. You had Under Armour it was a twenty-six billion dollar market cap. Now it's nine, um, so that didn't work out so well. Um, you know, you had a lot of hype in the athletic athleisure market, and uh, there's there's it's building back up because the sell the you know you can see the sell-through rates on some of these businesses and certainly when Lululemon's comping a nineteen percent in their stores, that's pretty it's pretty incredible and shows you the category's not even close to maturity at this point. But um there'll be winners and losers. Um I think at the high end you're seeing men wear much more technical product, whether it's dress pants to work, they've got some type of performance angle in them it's in them now. Um the casualization of the whole workplace I certain I certainly think is playing into some of this where people are commuting in much more you know, that ABC franchise that Lululemon's created in men's, that pant franchise is grow, is comping through the roof. Um, and some of that has to do with the fact men are wearing these to, you know, type of pants to work and in other situations they wouldn't wear them before. Um, and I'm more, speaking more on the men's side, but I don't think the women's side is seeing any slowdown either. So
1: You and I talk about it. We buy the th- those theory suits and they got stretch in them or the neoteric pants or the neoteric blazers. It's... Uh... You could wear them out. You could wear to wear them to work. I mean, it's it's unbelievable what some of the. I mean, that goes back to material innovation and and the ability for. And this is where the supply chain becomes so important because these brands are not only catering to consumer needs, but they're also developing unique products and unique unique materials that are able to transcend this this day and night type of uh, demand. You know, I want to ask you a question. I know you cover Under Armour in great length. They've obviously had a, it's an interesting story, right? You know, Kevin Plank starting out with a booth in one shirt to amassing, you know, a multi-billion dollar company. He obviously has had some struggles the past couple of years, but where do you see him? Where do you see him right now? And, and what's, what's kind of your uh, prognosis on, on their business?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I know Kevin, I've been, you know, I presented at their, his, uh, his off site house in Georgetown when, you know, a, a year ago. Uh, When they were going through the initial plans of the restructuring, we presented some of our survey work. I think Kevin's a great guy. I think he's a great entrepreneur. I I think that brand has made a lot of mistakes along the way. I think they walked away a little bit from their core consumer, which was um, hunting outdoor. um, And they made a massive pivot to basketball and streetwear. And I think they also made a big mistake in segmentation when they started selling the same product they were selling in Dick's and Kohl's um they were so focused on top line growth that they and their stock had such a mul- enormous multiple on it at the time um you got to you know 3 years ago this was a 26 billion dollar market cap it's at one point it hit 5 billion at the low um, so it was just an incredible turnaround in terms of investor perception um the brand obviously went through a massive deceleration in results in north america it's still growing 20% plus internationally but in North America they lost focus in my opinion of who their core customer was and they tried to make a massive pivot to streetwear and basketball and you know they've exited hunting they've exited outdoor that was who they grew up with was that kind of midwestern southern white male and now they're making a massive pivot towards basketball and streetwear there's you know they're a workout brand, a gym brand, and they're trying to you know establish themselves as a player in in the world of fashion versus Adidas Nike and Puma and it's gonna be it's gonna be difficult we still you know their women's business has not taken off I think they let they fed the beast in in terms of the u s wholesale channel with their kids' business, and you had every kid middle school and elementary kid decked out in under armor and yeah, they sold a lot of units doing it. But what does you think that mom is going to be dressed up in Under Armour, dropping her kids off at school in her minivan? I don't think so. And then, you know, on top of that, you didn't have that. You saw them move away from the premium market. I, I saw their tech tees on promotion for seventeen dollars yesterday on, on Instagram. That's just that's a price point that's dangerous because now you're playing in promotions. Right. You're not you're not stimulating a consumer at the high end, and that's that's where all the money is. Um, and it's interesting. Yeah, I you know, I was
1: reading the other day they these limited drops with the rock. I mean, are, are they are they just reaching for any you know anything to, to, to stimulate sales right now? Or is it, you know, like you said, they they have to kind of return back to their core customer, um, to, to really get that brand, you know, re- reinvigorated. You know, I don't know if necessarily going to Coles, as you mentioned, is was the right move. It helps it helps drive sales for the short term. But um, whenever you start to to play in channels that are not authentic to your, you know, your your brand or you're trying to just generate revenue for revenue's sake, I think I think it's very dangerous and it, it starts to confuse the customer.
2: Uh, yeah, no, I agree. And I think that, you know, they're a brand now that is heavily promoted throughout the wholesale channel and they've done some dr- stealth kind of mass promotions on their own DTC site, which, you know, are dangerous at times because it just, it just. It confuses the consumer on pricing architecture and what's premium, what's not. They have not established established themselves at the premium end of the apparel market anymore, um, and it's going to hurt them. I, you know, there's you talked about the Rock, the Rock. You know, you walk into their directly operated brand out stores, the first thing you see is a, a mannequin of the Rock and all their gym gear. The next, very next thing next to that is a mannequin of a jacked golfer who looks like he can bench press 400 pounds. So you're transitioning from weightlifting to golf. And what's right after that? Basketball and shoes. It just it's a very, very confused environment, store selling environment. I think that's why you're seeing them pull back on a lot of their stores in North America. You know, they're they're opening they closed their brand house in Soho, they're opening a massive flagship in the old FAO Schwartz building. They've got to figure out, you know, you can't be across the street from Cartier, Rolex, and Louis Vuitton selling $17 T-shirts. So they have a lot of work for them cut out to do at the premium end of the market at this point. And they've done a good job with their new hover shoe, which is, you know, it's a limited skew. It's $120, $130 running shoe, It's the best shoe they've ever made from a running perspective. But there's a lot to do on the apparel side of things here before they – Let's
1: not not forget, they got Nike Town down the block from them uh, over there as well. Yep.
2: Yeah. It's uh, Nike's doing a lot of interesting things at the higher end. You know, you've got people on these StockX exchanges and other exchanges paying four or five hundred dollars for Nike and Adidas shoes. They've established themselves at the high end. Under Armour has not, and that's their problem at this point.
1: So interesting question. Um, you know, you have these true athletic brands and they've been affected by athleisure. And you walk into a Nike town and you know, half the stuff is this is lifestyle and then this is, you know, true you know workout or true running uh, how are these brands differentiating themselves between what is true athletic and what is true athleisure you know all
2: the money's not in gym you know in gym wear it's in the athletic fashion side of the market that's where the the premium price points are and uh certainly Nike and Adidas and Puma have done a good job there Lululemon's crushing it at the super premium end of the market um but others are just kind of you know I don't see a lot of others at this point competing um, in apparel with the with those with those brands.
1: So John, I have I have two last questions for you, kind of open-ended. Um, you know, what is it that the traditional retailers need to learn from some of these young up, upstarts? How much of it is, in your opinion, supply chain? How much of it is product itself, how much of it is marketing, marketing? Um what is what where are these digitally native brands finding success and what do you think these traditional brands and retailers need to learn from some of these new these new players in the market
2: Sure I mean I think it always starts with product product is what wins the sell through rates are always determined by product great great product you, you know authentic product people pay full price good things happen to your top line your margin structure you know your valuation of your company Uh, Supply chain is a big portion of it. You look at the most um, robust financial companies in the space, the Nikes of the world, the the VF Corps of the world, the companies that print cash flow and have done it in a very stable manner for a long time, um, the Adidas of the world, the the Inditexas with Zaras, um, their supply chains are are incredibly robust. They have massive scale. Um, I think they all want to get faster, and they all will get faster, and they all need to get faster. But you know, certainly, if you want to hit that scale, you better have an incredible supply chain. Um, the digital brands are—they're small at this point, so we don't know. You know, we're gonna—you're gonna find out how good they are in terms of supply chain. I think they're—they're they're so small at this point that um, we don't know much about a lot of their supply chains. I don't think any of them are winning on speed yet. I think a lot of them are winning just on marketing and uh, and and good product.
1: Do you think it's a dangerous business model to start a brand, you know, um raise a lot of VC money, dump it all into consumer acquisition and marketing, build up a bit a lot of top line growth, um, not have a solid supply chain because that's not maybe where you're you come from. You have, you know, you create a product that resonates with, with, a, with a small niche. You, you, you keep paying to, 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 to acquire customers, but you have to keep raising and raising and raising because your, your churn rate is, is, amazing, you know, is, is astronomical. Your consumer acquisition costs are astronomical. Is this a sustainable business model?
2: Uh, for many, no. For the ones that have great product, they'll fi- they'll figure it out. It all starts with product and retail and consumer. If you have great product, eventually you can hire the people like Ed to do the supply chain and and fix that. But if you don't have great product, you've got no chance, um, whether your supply chain is good or not. But if you have great product, I think you can eventually get the right people into the supply chain to figure it out. Um, you know, spend the time on the ground in China, Bangladesh, and all those places, and and ultimately build a good supply chain. But if you have a good product, that's where it all starts in retail. Good craftsmanship, authentic story—you're um, gonna, you can win. But you know, I, I, and eventually, I think you can figure out the supply chain. Some are much better than others. But the digital brands, I think, are—you know—they're winning on product right now. I don't, I'm not sure how disciplined and robust their supply chain operations are at this point. <laughs>
1: So last question. I know, I know Cowan and yourself, you do an extensive amount of survey work uh, trying to understand consumer preferences, demand, uh, changing, changing preferences. What are you, what are you seeing right now that the consumers are looking for what they're disappointed about? um, And and what are, what are these brands and retailers need to do to keep up with the, these consumers um, in order to satisfy their, their, their needs
2: and wants? I'm amazed right now watching all these, you know, consumer and, you know, retailers and brands at the pricing power at the high end of everything. Like I said, whether it's $800 Canada goose pullover jackets, $1,000 iPhones, $500 golf clubs at Cal- Callaway, um, you know, Nike's being able to sell uh limited release old school Jordan product at $500 in a resale market. Uh, same thing with Adidas. I'm amazed at what cons- the prices consumers will be willing to pay for premium authentic product i think we've never seen pricing power at this level for key brands i think it's, the amazing thing is what we've learned the last year or so with this 90s retro cycle is these brands are actually getting more powerful as they get older uh with you know so that's something to watch the vault of product that these companies have the pricing power they have on some of it it's pretty incredible so and at the you better either be at the high end or the low end you better be tj maxx raw stores of burlington or you better be uh, Nike, Canada Goose, Lululemon, or the guys at the high end—everything in the middle is getting crushed.
1: Well, I was just—you you took the words right out of my mouth because it seems that this whole conversation today has been about, you know, super price-sensitive, um, you know, catering to to a a price-conscious customer or someone that has really disposable income and will pay for that luxury product. You know, what does that mean for the, the people in the middle, the, the bananas, the gaps, the J. Cruz, you know, you know, we not not them particularly, but but the, there's an endless list, the JC Penney's, there's an endless list of these retailers that, that play somewhere in the middle. Um what are they supposed to do?
2: You know, they better get good at really good at supply chain and forecast funding and allocating their business because it's gonna get more competitive and the more markdowns you have, the worse your economics are gonna get.
1: So, so, John, on that note, I, you know I really appreciate you being with us today. You know, hopefully you'll you'll join us uh, again soon. It, it, this is a never ending uh, conversation. you know, uh, we're watching day by day what's going on with the tariffs and whatnot. I'm sure this is something that you're tracking. I'd be curious to see what the what the what the uh, retailers and brands are saying on their earnings call as it relates to that. so, uh, please come back and join us in a couple months, and let's uh, let's catch up and see how these brands and retailers are doing uh, after uh, Black Friday and the holiday season. You bet. Thanks for having me, Ed. All right, John. Take care. Join us for our sixth annual Sourcing Summit here in New York on October 11th. This year's Sourcing Summit is not to be missed. We have more than 20 amazing speakers lined up to lead thought-provoking discussions on why sustainability makes both dollars and cents, how data can deliver true customer-centric results, what the supply chain of the future will really look like, and what disruptors are doing that everyone else had better get a handle on. We'll be joined on stage by McKinsey & Company, Google, Wharton, Nike, Under Armour, Outernown, Trendalytics, Lee & Fung, and many more. Visit sourcingjournal.com to learn more and purchase your tickets today.